Hello and happy Saturday. We have picked today's Saturday classic because once again, this person is coming up on a forthcoming episode of the show. It's Marie Tussaud and her wax sculptures, but really this story is so much bigger than just the wax likenesses of famous people. Uh, This episode also talks about wax venuses and all the beheadings during the reign of terror and a lot of very savvy business decisions. This originally came out April 25th, 2011, and it is by our previous host, Sarah and Dublina. So enjoy! Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And every now and then, listener suggestions sync up exactly with ideas we're already thinking of. And that has definitely happened this week. Yeah, y'all are mind readers for sure. You are. It kind of scares me a little bit. I'm not going to lie. But I've been thinking for a month or so of doing a podcast on Madame Tussaud, the famous woman who started the waxworks in London. And since then, Listener emails have been trickling in, not tons of them, but very, uh, very pro Madame Tussaud listeners suddenly. I don't know where y'all came from. Yeah, and it's interesting because a lot of us, I mean, me in particular, I hardly ever think about Madame Tussaud, the woman behind the wax figures. Yeah, you just think of David Beckham or whatever wax figure is the celeb of the moment. Yeah, exactly. Will I stop in on this particular visit or not? But her story is actually really amazing. It combines court life at Versailles, revolutionary dangers, and plucky business acumen, at least depending on who you believe, Um, according to her own memoirs, that's true. In reality, you might find that that's a little bit different. Definitely. But one recent biographer, Kate Barrage, wrote uh, Madame Tussauds Life in Wax. I think it came out in 2006. And she described the the wax artist as an original tabloid journalist. And I thought that was a really interesting way to think of her and kind of a different way to think of her. Somebody who traded in celebrity and images long before photography or video or even color printing. I mean, just think of the little engravings you would get in the newspaper if you were lucky enough to read a newspaper. That would be all you you had to go on to know what your king looked like even. Yeah, so she was a bit of a reporter, we could say. And it was really more than entertainment. There was sort of this sideshow nature of waxworks at the time. They were a little declasse depending on which exhibits you were going to. But it was about information, you know, letting people know what folks looked like and teaching them a little bit about history, too, which is always good for our purposes. Yeah, definitely. But first, before we delve into all those bigger issues, I think we should take a look back at how she got into this. I mean, that's what I find most interesting. How does a woman of this era get into wax? Yeah, an education in wax. Yeah, it all began for her. She was born Marie Grossholtz on December 1st, 1761 in Strasbourg, actually. Her mother was a cook and her father was a soldier who died before she was born. But when she was still an infant, her mother went to work as the housekeeper for a young doctor named Philippe Cortius, who lived in Bern. Yeah, but he was more than a doctor, quite notably, he made anatomical waxes, which originally, when you were short on cadavers, that would be a good way to train your doctors to to study the human body. But the waxes he made were also kind of erotic in a way. They were sometimes called anatomical venuses, and they were usually these young women waxes that had 
parts you could unfold and, and look at their inner organs and all of that and, and study them anatomically. But he did portraits too, curiosity type stuff, and started to build a name for himself because he was quite good at it. And most importantly for young Marie's future career, he was really good at getting the color of the skin right, making the waxes appear like flesh, not just like a candle that melted down into a human shape. They really look kind of like they're alive. Yeah, and because of his skill at this, eventually word of Cortius's talent spread to the French court. And when the Prince de Conti, Louis XV's cousin, visits the waxmaker, he invites Cortius back to Paris, where he opens a salon and does private commissions. Yeah, so he's made it to the, the big time. And it's a good time to be in Paris in general because it's booming. People of all classes are seeking entertainment. It seems like just about constantly when you read about it. And there's something new going on too. And that's a culture of celebrity. So people are really interested in images all of a sudden. So a waxworks like this is a potentially profitable business. Yeah, but tastes change so quickly that the wax head in Curtius's salon are actually chiseled off when they go out of style, which is a little bit foreboding. A little ominous considering when this takes place. But after, after a little while in Paris, you know, sort of setting things up, he has his former housekeeper and her daughter join him. So this seems a little suspicious, and a lot of historians have speculated on what the relationship between Curtius and Marie really was. Some think that Marie's mother was his sister, and so he was her uncle. And then other people think that maybe he was even secretly Marie's father. But regardless of any possible blood relation between them, Curtius really treated Marie like a daughter, definitely in every way. He took her on as his pupil. He started her off modeling fruit and flowers, which was a lot easier to do than modeling the human form with all its different textures and colors. And um, I guess we should give you a little description of how the wax heads were were made because it's pretty cool. Yeah, and it really helps with the understanding, I think. Um, so basically, a clay head would be made, and from that, a plaster of Paris mold was created in sections. And then the sections would be fitted together and molten— Little pegs and stuff connecting them. Exactly. And molten wax would be poured inside. And you had to be really careful so that bubbles didn't form when you did that you part of it. bubble, like, taking out the nose or something. No way. Um, so then when the crust hardened, the center was poured out because the outsides would harden a little faster than the center. And when the whole thing was solid, the molds would be removed and then glass eyes would be fitted in from the inside, right? And that was apparently one of the trickiest parts because you got to make sure the eyes are going in the right direction. One isn't kind of protruding more than the other. Uh, you don't pop them out of the mold entirely or the, the new wax mold. Or break the head. Yeah, exactly. So I think the, the eyes were the tricky part, but the hair was the really painstaking part because unless there was a wig involved, it had to be threaded through the wax strand by strand. So you can imagine. Tedious. It would be really tedious. But by her teens, Marie is really good at making these wax models. She's as good as her so-called uncle. And so with these talents, it's maybe no surprise that in 1780, a 19-year-old Marie somehow ends up at Versailles. Or at least that's her story. (laughs) 
According to her memoirs, Marie instructed the devout younger sister of Louis XVI, who is Madame Elizabeth, and she instructed her in religious votive making, which was kind of like making wax relics. So the two teenagers, they really hit it off, and they hit it off so well that Marie actually became a bourgeois star of the court. So she'd supposedly sit in while the king met privately with his sister. She'd have sittings for waxes with Louis, Marie Antoinette, and their children. She supposedly got hit on by the future Louis Eighteenth, and she stayed there for nine years at court. Yeah, so this sounds really remarkable, and it's been a, a crucial part of her legend since then, and especially since she set up shop in England, especially considering what's to come in the revolution. We're going to get into that in a minute. But it's interesting to me that it's reported without questions in most sources you find on Madame Tussauds' life. It's in Oxford Dictionary National Biography. It's in Encyclopedia Britannica, History Magazine. But in that 2006 biography I mentioned in the beginning, Barrage, Kate Barrage's biography, She kind of raises some questions about many aspects of Marie's memoirs, but especially this Versailles part, because, I mean, and we certainly learned this in our, in our bourbon series. I, I would imagine y'all remember this too, but Versailles is a really rule driven place. It's not somewhere where you have breakout stars from the middle class, really. Court etiquette would have made it pretty unlikely that Marie, who, of course, her family's main livelihood is this kind of sideshow wax exhibit, would really thoroughly infiltrate Versailles. And perhaps most significantly, there are no records of her in kind of two key areas. There are no records of her in the Almanac de Versailles, which is the exhaustive list of court employees. It really has everybody who worked in Versailles. Yeah, she really should have been on that. Or there are also no records of her in Madame Elizabeth's staff, which even includes Madame Elizabeth's part-time hairdresser. So yeah, so, even the little guys were making it on the list. Well, and even if he was important to her, I mean, the, the main thing there is that if it's including part-time people, it's really unlikely that she would have just completely slipped through the cracks like this. So she might have been to Versailles, and she might have even taught Madame Elizabeth a few classes here and there. But what's perhaps more likely is that she was really spending most of her time back in Paris working with her family's booming wax business and honing her art. You know, she was making a lot of the figures herself by the time she was in her teens and learning the business too, learning how to attract customers and advertise all things that are going to serve her really well later in life. Of course, things changed a little bit when the revolution came around, or a lot, depending on how you look at it. If, in fact, Marie was at Versailles, Curtius recalled her and they consolidated their shows at the Boulevard de Temple. And what followed from there was nothing short of amazing. Curtius and Marie somehow managed to actually capitalize on the revolution. Some good money during it. Yeah, they actually profited. They switched from displays of the king and queen at the Grand Couvert to revolutionary heroes to later scenes like the death of Marat. Um, all without losing their heads. So I know, it's, it's pretty impressive because you can imagine the mob in Paris during the revolution. They're, it's not just like somebody goes out of style. They go out of style, and you better not still be exhibiting the waxworks when it when it happens. So Curtius himself, though, played a role in the revolution. He was among those who stormed the Bastille, and his waxworks 
had a role too, surprisingly enough. Even before the storming of the Bastille, just a few days before it, a crowd came to the salon and obtained the heads of the heroes of the moment. This is pre-guillotine, so heads don't have quite the significance they would have later. Uh, at this point, it was Jacques Necker and the Duc d'Orléans. And the crowd takes the heads and they go and show them off and uh, march around with them and eventually run into some trouble with royal soldiers and try to protect the heads. It's a it's a really wild story. Some of them are killed trying to defend the wax heads. And the Orléans bust is lost in the scramble. But the Necker one actually comes back to the shop badly singed. You can imagine at that point, maybe the eyes would be a little out of whack and the, the hair would be burned off. But makes it back. Just a strange story before the French Revolution even really starts. Yeah, definitely. And they keep going with this, though. They keep following the crowd and they keep following the trends. So when Bastille memorabilia becomes big, Marie models a figure of the Comte de Lorge, a prisoner who's actually been made up since the real guys inside had been a little less than yeah, heroic. They were like forgers. I think there was a guy in there for incest and his family wanted him locked up. Nobody in the Bastille was really like super heroic figure. You wouldn't want a figure of them hanging out in your house. Exactly. So you just make one up and then Murray makes a wax of it for you. There you go. So by the summer of 1789, an entire tableau of the siege was featured in the waxworks. Yeah, but as the revolution turned, obviously Murray's work became a lot grimmer. And she started to model the guillotined heads of her supposed former friends at Versailles. And this is a really poignant part of the Tissot legend. You know, she claimed to have molded the heads of the Princess de Lamballe, who had been tortured for four hours at the Tuileries Massacre, Louis XVI, before he was interred in a double heaping helping of quicklime because the revolutionaries really didn't want any relics left. And Marie Antoinette herself, although this story didn't come from Marie, it came from a 19th century exhibit catalog. Again, though, there's some issues with this idea of her catching the heads from the guillotine, essentially, and, and making molds of them. Yeah, Marie always mentions that she models the head at the order of the National Assembly. Perhaps Unlikely, though, considering the efforts that the revolutionaries would take to erase all relics of the royals, yeah, like you if, just mentioned. If you don't want anyone to have Louis's body, why would you want him? Why would you want them to have a perfect likeness of him? Right, and then also some of the heads just plain didn't show up for a really long time. For instance, Louis and Marie Antoinette weren't displayed at the waxworks after the revolution until the 1860s in London. So. It, it would have been dangerous to, to display them. Absolutely. Cortius sold off a lot of the royal figures, actually, to an exhibit traveling through India. Which I think is interesting, yeah. too. Marie Antoinette and folks traveling traveling around. But a lot safer there. I guess so, unless it's hot. I'm not sure. But that's not to say that Curtius and Marie weren't taking models from guillotine victims. I mean, it, it is quite possible they were doing that. Um, maybe just not Louis XVI himself. It's possible that Curtius made a deal with one of the really famous executioners during the revolution to inspect all the outgoing heads to see if any famous faces were among them. And it's also likely that he would visit the cemeteries, and he may have modeled Madame de Berry that way, um, since she was supposed to be a remarkably good likeness. 
Marie actually even recounts her own near brush with the guillotine when she, her mother, and an aunt were seized in the middle of the night, imprisoned, and they got their weekly haircuts for the blade. Yeah. But by 1794, Marie was safe and supposedly making a mold of Robespierre's head. Always one step ahead of the game, that Marie. Definitely. But that same year, Curtius died at home. I mean, this probably kind of an amazing stat for the time anyways, dying at home. And he left Marie everything he had. Like we said earlier, he really did treat her like a daughter. And one of the things he left her, one of his most valuable possessions, was of course the core of his waxworks. He had 36 full figures, seven half-length figures, and three reclining figures. So it seems like Marie's going to be able to carry on the family business. Yeah, and she does that, and she makes it even more of a family business, I guess, when she marries an engineer named Francois Tussaud at the age of 34. And they have three children, uh, the first of whom unfortunately dies young. But Francois, he wasn't really a good partner either at home or in their business. He gambles and gets them into pretty bad debt. Plus, business just isn't going that well in general. I mean, you think Marie would be happy to be out of the revolutionary horrors, but Business just has slumped since then, maybe because people aren't interested in seeing grisly thieves and heads and that type of thing when they've seen it firsthand not that long ago. So Marie takes up the offer of showman Paul de Philipstall to tour England with him, and he owes her one. That's why she gets this deal with him. He owes her one since Cordius saved him from the guillotine. Um, again, though, it's a poor partnership between the two of them. Marie actually has to pay her own way and split her takings 50-50. She also has to leave behind her younger son and her elderly mother. Yeah, but she does well for herself even then. So she's she's taking her older son with her, and she's learning enough English to get by and competing with the existing waxworks in England, which I know now we only think of her as far as waxworks go. But at the time, there were other big names in the business. Her quality, though, is better. And because she was French and fresh from the revolution, that added sort of a cachet to the whole the whole enterprise. Yeah, but even though Marie is doing well, her partner, Philip Stahl, really isn't. And so he kind of changes the nature of their working relationship. It turns more and more into a kind of indentured servitude. He drags her to Scotland, always leaving one city right when she's taking off and getting really successful. And from Scotland, they go to Dublin, where she's finally able to buy him off. And she starts advertising under her own name instead of the better-known Cordius. Yeah, and it's also in Dublin where she decides she's not going to go home to France. That had always been the plan. Stir up some interest, make some money, and then go back to France because that's where the core of her business is and where the rest of her family is. But her husband won't respond to her letters. He loses their house. He loses the collection. And there's really nothing there for her anymore except her younger son. And it becomes clear to her that the only way she's going to make a future for her two children is to either succeed or fail in England. Yeah, so after four years in Dublin, she makes the decision to go on the road and 
as a traveling exhibit and tours Great Britain for 27 years or so. She perfects her advertising and her business strategy at this point. She starts plastering the towns that she's in with her show before her arrival. She threatens to leave, you know, with signs that say things like, only one day left. Last chance. Yeah, and then actually ends up staying instead. By popular demand. (laughs) Right. Um, She really only leaves a place when her business slows. And she takes out these grand rooms to show off the figures. And she really makes her customers feel comfortable, too, which was something of note at the time. There would be refreshments. There would be ottomans. So you could relax and chat with each other and look at the waxworks at your leisure, not just some exhausting trip. There was background music. That was another kind of revolutionary thing. Uh, Make the place feel a little more comfortable, not quiet and weird. And she pitched the educational value of the waxworks too. Like we mentioned in in the introduction, she distanced herself from the sideshow, from those waxworks with her quality, with her little biographies. It was like, this is a really good way for people to learn about the heroes of the day, the famous criminals, famous people from the past. She she pitched it from different angles. And she also spent a lot of time making figures still. All the new celebrities, the thieves, the royals, she would make them and she would fix the ones that got banged up during stagecoach journeys between towns. Because, gosh, I mean, can you imagine (laughs) toting wax figures in a stagecoach? Yeah, can't be good. Sounds risky. An article in Chambers Journal from 1881 actually describes the appeal of these wax works. It says, One can fearlessly criticize the crowned kings of England, and one can enter securely into a layer of thieves and murderers and feel with a chill that they are shockingly like commonplace mortals. Yeah, so I mean, I think that's that's an interesting way to look at it, to to have that closeness to your king or to people who you're reading about in the news and and really get to see them almost firsthand. But Marie and her elder son's constant travel is interrupted a few times by real-life drama. They were shipwrecked once, sailing from Liverpool to Dublin. A lot of people on board the ship drown. And they narrowly miss losing their collection entirely to fire during the 1831 Bristol riots, which I think was always a constant concern, even back when she was traveling with Philip Stahl, she was really concerned when this new gaslight show is like going to come in downstairs because if you're dealing in wax, it better be a pretty stable temperature. But when her younger son was 22, he finally rejoined his mother and brother in England. And the two sons got married to English women and they started families. And as late as 1967, even, the Tissot operation was still a family affair. But Anybody who knows the company today knows that the original was in London. So when did she finally change her operation from this traveling company to a brick-and-mortar building? Well, in 1835, Marie and her sons took out a nice spot at the bazaar on Baker Street. Still a short-term lease as usual, um, nothing too serious, but it proved to be just about the perfect spot for them. There were commercial businesses nearby. So it was a busy area. The annual Smithfield Cattle Show also took place downstairs and brought in a lot of folks from the country. So by 1836, they had decided to stay. Yeah, and the sun spent a lot to really outfit the place beautifully. They bought a lot of treasures. You know, they started actually buying art and nice furniture and that sort of thing. The Duke of Wellington paid them a visit. And they really focused on 
Victorian stuff, too, because this coincides with the start of Victoria's reign. And so they had comfy exhibits, way different from Louis and Marie Antoinette at the Grand Couvert, where they're very formal and stiff at dinner. They had displays of Victoria and Albert and their young kids just sort of relaxing at home like a normal family would. Yeah, the collection starts acquiring real stuff, too, not just good copies. Marie, for example, buys the original guillotine from the Place de Greve for the Chamber of Horrors. She also purchases George IV's actual coronation robes. And perhaps most tellingly, Madame Tussaud becomes a star herself in her old age. Dickens actually parodies her as Mrs. Jarley and consequently doesn't make it into the collection until both of them are dead. So even though he's arguably the biggest star of the era, <laughs> yeah, he must she must have not liked that no, very much. Apparently not. Westminster Abbey, which we just talked about on a recent podcast, they ask her to refurbish their waxes, which we also mentioned. She refuses, says, "I have my own wax shop." Sorry, guys. And Barnum, the the circus man, tries to buy them out. She refuses him too, probably because she's been into these, she's gotten herself into these bad partnerships before and she's not going to do it again. She's still sort of feeling the effects of her uh, degenerate husband too. Francois Tussaud makes one last attempt to get in touch and get something out of his long estranged wife. I mean, they haven't talked in decades by this point, but he contacts her in the 1840s and she's really disturbed by it. She's disturbed that if she dies before him, and she is a few years older than him, um, he'll he'll get the business and, and her sons will be left out in the cold. And so she signs articles of partnership between herself and her sons to protect their interest. And she dies not too long after that, April 15th, 1850, which is one year before Prince Albert's famous Great Exhibition, which proves to be sort of a turning point for the show. They, Her sons prepare for it. They enlarge their rooms. They really know how big it's going to be, and they get ready, and it, it serves to their advantage. Yeah, and the exhibit eventually moves to Marleybone Road, and it was damaged during the Blitz, but has since become an international chain with locations, of course, in Hollywood, New York, Bangkok, Berlin, D.C., Shanghai, all over the place. They ditched the possessive, too, so now it's just Madame Tussauds. Yeah, but you might still be wondering about our title, the Tussaud Test of Popularity. I guess it's pretty obvious, but it came about in an 1849 issue of Punch magazine, and I'm just going to go ahead and read to you what was written in Punch. In these days, no one can be considered properly popular unless he is admitted into the company of Madame Tussauds celebrities in Baker Street. The only way in which a powerful and lasting impression can be made on the public mind is through the medium of wax. And I think that's interesting because it's still kind of true today. I went to the Tussauds website and saw, you know, who their latest figures were. There was like a giant picture of Justin Bieber and <laughs> Madame Tussauds in Hollywood even has a hot or not voting system. Lady Gaga, though, seems to be the wax celebrity of the moment because there are eight Lady Gagas in different costumes around the world. I thought they'd at least be identical because how many people are going to go to the one in London and then Shanghai and then New York? I guess they've given super fans uh, a reason to do so now. Absolutely. And here, Helen Mirren once commented on what it was like, I guess, to be immortalized in wax. And she said, it's like becoming a dame, really a great honor. So there you go. 
thanks so much for joining us on this Saturday. Since this episode is out of the archive, if you heard an email address or a Facebook URL or something similar over the course of the show, that could be obsolete now. Our current email address is historypodcast at iheartradio.com. Our old How Stuff Works email address no longer works. You can find us all over social media at Missed in History. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 